Well, uh, about four and a half years ago, I became a grandfather for the first time, and I believe it is the sweetest gig in the universe. It truly is. Any grandparents out here? That's what I'm saying. All right, so um, so we're in the car with my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter a couple of years ago, and uh, she was traveling with us. Her parents were at my daughter's house, and we were traveling there. Uh, they live in El Dorado Hills, out Latrobe Road, and if you know El Dorado Hills or that particular area, Latrobe Road is, it is, is this little two-lane highway that it kind of runs out into the hills there in El, El Dorado Hills. So we're driving along, and, uh, and, and I did what um, oftentimes happens. She's in the, the car seat behind me. My wife is next to me, and, uh, and we're driving out there. I kind of take a curve a little too fast. You know how that is. You can, you're going a little too fast. So I started to drift towards the center line just a little bit, and, uh, you know, you never want to do that. So um, I just corrected myself back. And, and like all of us, and, and occasionally happens, I probably overcorrected real quick, you know, kind of like that. And I hear this little two-and-a-half-year-old voice from the back seat say, what the freaking heck? Like my granddaughter. My, she didn't learn it from me. I don't know where she learned it, but I'm guessing. I know. All right? What the freaking heck? Out of the mouths of babes, huh? Isn't that true? Sometimes the greatest things come out of that. I, I, I was wondering in the passage we're going to look at today if Samuel, uh, the, the, the last great uh, judge in the nation of Israel, felt that same kind of thing. What the freaking heck? When the people of Israel come to him and ask him to anoint for them a king. You guys have been studying in 1 Samuel. I know that you've uh, you know, been walking through those passages together. I'm going to kind of try to continue that uh, this morning as we're together. Uh, but uh, you'll remember the story, right? The people of Israel come to Samuel. They are sick and tired of the system of the, of the judges. It's not working. And, uh, and they are beset by all these enemies around them. Foremost among them is a group called the Philistines who figure very prominently in the story in 1 Samuel. And, uh, and so they come to Samuel. They're like, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations around us to lead us in battle and, and all those different kinds of things. And, uh, and of course, the first Samuel's hurt. I mean, and he's really displeased. He takes this to the Lord. He was like, Lord, what is going on? And God tells him, hey, Samuel, don't worry about this. They're not rejecting you. This isn't about you. This is about me. They are rejecting me as their king. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to them. I want you to warn them what it's going to be like, what life will be like under a king, like all the other nations. And I just want you to tell them what it's going to be like. So Samuel goes, and he begins to warn the people and just tell them, here's what it's going to be like. But they just shout him down. Says, no, 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 king us, king us. We want you to king us. So, Samuel takes this back to God, and God says, Samuel, king him. King him. Now, it wasn't wrong for the nation of Israel to have a king, but this begins the kingship in Israel. And if you'll remember, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when the, the, the next generation is getting ready to enter the land, and they're preparing for it, Moses, God through Moses, outlines for the people what kind of king he wants them to have when that time comes that they will have a king. And he just outlines it for them. Right? And it was not to be like all the other nations around them. See, all the other nations in the ancient Near Eastern world had kings who were in absolute control, had absolute power, and absolute authority over their people and over their subjects. And they could do pretty much anything they wanted as long as they could defend themselves and keep the kingship. Right? But it was not to be that way in Israel. Israel was to be different. 
You see, when Moses outlines this for them, he tells them the kings are, are supposed to never, they're never supposed to set a foreigner over them as king, but only a brother Israelite. Because he never wanted the king to be better than his brothers and sisters in the faith. He didn't want them, them exalting themselves over the people. He wanted them to be a brother to them. Secondly, they were told not to multiply horses, wives, or wealth. They were not to be able to do anything that they wanted. And in fact, they were actually kind of downsize who they were as the king. And, and then finally, the king was instructed uh, to, to write a copy, handwrite a copy of the Torah, the great law of God for himself, and then submit themselves to God's law. That's the way it was supposed to be in Israel. But the people want a king like all the other nations. And that was the issue. That was the problem. And I don't know about you, but have you ever played the game checkers? Right? There's this, this great moment in checkers when you move your man finally to the other side into one of those spaces and you say, King me. Oh, that is a great moment, isn't it? There's a flood of intoxicating power and potential that flows into you. You all of a sudden become master of the board to a certain degree. You can do anything you want to. You can move any way you want to. You can go wherever you want to on the board. It's a great, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. But it's also a little dangerous. It's dangerous. And this is what the people of Israel are facing. And this is what you and I wrestle with every day. That intoxicating flood of power to be king. To be king. Now, let me see if I can give you a little bit of um, traction on this a little bit. Uh, I want to give you some information that maybe will help you to kind of get in touch with this. Uh, because there's a parallel between the kingship in Israel and you and I as individuals. Right? If you were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, you would notice that God creates man in his own image according to his likeness. And in those words, the imago Dei, the, the very presence of God, God outlines and designs man for a certain thing. Now, there, there are four different Hebrew words for man, by the way. There's the first one called Adam. We get our word Adam from it, which emphasizes man and his organic connection to the rest of the universe, his organic connection to nature and, and to everything around him in, in the created universe. There's a second Hebrew word, Henosh which looks at man in his frailty, in his weakness. Uh, he's not, you know, this, this great big thing. There's a third Hebrew word called gever, which emphasizes man in his warrior status, his ability to fight battles in life. And then there's a final word, and this is the word that we want to settle on, ish. When God creates man in Genesis 1, he creates this man, ish, in his image, according to his likeness. And do you remember what he... Uh, invested the, the human beings with. He said, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, master it. And the truth of the matter is simply this. You and I were created to be kings in the world in which we live. We were created with specific spheres of influence that God would grant to us to be co-rulers with him in the universe, the same way that he did with Adam and with Eve. We are created to master the worlds that we live in, not to allow them to master us. Not to allow them to push us around, but instead to live as kings and as queens in life. This is what God has designed us for. And this is what he wants to see happen. But there's the danger. And there's where it gets kind of tricky, right? Every single day we deal with this. This is where it gets tricky. 
how do I co-reign with God? How do I exercise my, my God-given role, my God-given capacities, and yet fully honor God as the capital K King? How do I do that? And in the story that we're going to look at this morning uh, that's going to help us with this, we're going to kind of try to look at um, Saul as the first king of the nation of Israel. And in contrast with his son Jonathan through a series of stories that we want to look at here. All I simply want to say is this, this, this issue, this, this tension we hold between, um, you know, h- how do I exercise this God-given role to, to master the world around me under the leadership of God who is the capital K King, all right, how do I do that in a way that will fully honor him and yet take advantage of all that I have? And this is critical, everybody. This is fundamentally where we live every single day. In every marriage, this is the tension. In every business, this is the tension. As we work day to day, this is the tension. How do I work in such a way that I utilize my God-given capacities in this role that God has given to me, and yet let God be the ruler, be Lord, be King? How do I do that? And with me, it comes down to this. How much of me do I inject into that? I mean, how much of me do I actually put into that? And then how much do I allow to be God? And believe me, there are people who do not get this at all. As they live in life, it's all them. Everything is about them. Everything is about how they are going to be the capital K king in life. But for those of us who have become followers of Jesus, there is a whole different dynamic that we have to shift into. And how much of me do I put into this? And how much do I allow God to be in this. And that's a difficult tension. That is hard. And it's really messy. I mean, there's going to be mistakes made. There are going to be glitches and false starts. There are going to be running off into, you know, running off the road. I mean, it's going to be this constant tension. But the story that we're going to look at in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is a significant story to help us kind of navigate our way through the messiness and through the difficulty of this particular tension. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you guys know the drill. We have some available, so just raise your hand if you need a Bible. And, uh, and you can follow along with me as we go through the story. It's a very important story. Now here's what we want to do. I'm going to walk you through the story. We can. Then at the end, I'm going to make a few observations that I hope will be relevant to all of us here and kind of give us some traction for life. All right? Does that sound like a deal? All right, so we'll try to do that. Now, before we get started, there's one more concept you're going to need to understand to to kind of fully understand what will happen throughout this this series of stories, all right, that actually comprise a large story. And that's this. You have to understand a concept called holy war in Israel. Now, I know it's not a concept that's, that's familiar to us. It's very foreign, and it's probably not very popular in our day and time. But it existed in the Israelite culture, and it's, uh, it, 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 it will work well for us if we can kind of understand what this is about. Holy War is about how God extends his influence into the geopolitical world of that day. How does Israel become a nation in a geopolitical kingdom in a geopolitical world? And so um, it was necessary for them to conduct, at times, holy war in this process. There are tenets about holy war that the Israelites practiced, and all countries practiced these, right? But the number one thing that, the, that, that Israel had to remember was this, that Yahweh, her king, was her great warrior. 
He was the one who would fight her battles. He was the one who would go before her. He is the one who would defeat the enemy. He is the one who would supply the power and the strength and the resources for the battles that we would face. This is what Israel was to remember. It was the number one thing, the cardinal rule of holy war. Yahweh was Israel's warrior. And due to that particular rule, Israel throughout her history was always running a little bit behind in technological innovation of weaponry. I mean, they actually weaponry, had, you know, the, the technology of the time, that is iron working and things, was, uh, was, was already done. It had been about 600 years since it had actually been developed for swords and spears and those kind of things. But the Israelites routinely and in fact deliberately often did not utilize the technology of their day in order to fight their battles because this would force them to trust God. This would force them to trust Yahweh as their warrior. This would force their hand to rely on him to act in supernatural ways to bring the victory. So they were always a little bit behind. We would call them late adopters for technology. All right. So let's get into the story, and, uh, and it's going to help us as we begin this process to just begin at the beginning, chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 16. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the men uh, with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped in Michmash. Now raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the, in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Oran, and the third toward a borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the desert. And not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, well, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all of Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. See, the Philistines had a, a monopoly on the iron-working business at the time that the Hebrews did not have. And so they kind of held the market on weapons technology and the, the forming of iron. Now, the Israelites had these axes and mattocks and, and agricultural tools, but they didn't have any real weaponry to speak of. And it was extremely expensive to go to the Philistines to get their stuff sharpened. So we'll just kind of continue on. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for the sharpening of plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes for repointing goads. So pretty expensive stuff. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul or Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand, but only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now you can immediately see the situation. They are facing their most formidable enemy, the Philistines, who have cornered the market at ironworking. They are outgunned and they are outmanned. Saul's forces have shrunk from the thousands who had been following him to only a few hundred men, in fact, about 600. And, and, and Saul is in Gibeah along with Jonathan. And we pick up the story beginning at the end of uh, chapter 13, beginning of verse 14. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out at the pass at Michmash. And one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah at the time under a pomegranate tree in Migron. And with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. And no one was aware that Jonathan had left. So you can kind of begin to see the situation. And you know, I see Jonathan here. Jonathan begins talking to his armor bearer and they plan a black op into enemy territory. And they just decide, you know, let's go over there, just you and I, and let's, let's create some, let's, let's rumble. Let's create a little something. At the same time, you can kind of see what's happening with Saul. Saul is, well, let's say he's just passive. Right? 
Remember, Saul is on the outs. Saul and Samuel have had this giant falling out over his great failure at the beginning of chapter 13. And Samuel has told Saul, Saul, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. God spoke to me, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. You are on the way out as king. We're not going to allow you to be king anymore. So this is the situation. And I think Saul was probably a little bit depressed by that news, I'm guessing. I think I would be, you might be, if that were to happen. And, uh, and he's kind of holed up in this place called Gibeah. He's under a pomegranate tree, and he's not doing much of anything. And the other thing that's about this is he's kind of with a kind of a, a sketchy crew. All right? And he's just got these few people around him. And one of them, and you notice they spend a lot of time describing this guy, Ahijah. Ahijah is the great-grandson of Eli, who is, the, who is from the disgraced priestly line. You guys have, done, have studied this earlier in the book of Samuel. He's from the disgraced priestly line, so he's a little sketchy about being the priest, but he's wearing the linen ephod, and he's there, and uh, he's advising. And, and then here's the other thing. Where is Samuel? Throughout our narrative in the story today, Samuel will be uh, uh, conspicuously missing in action. He's not around. He's absent. Which means Saul is relying on advisors who may not be the best people, but he's holed up in this place and he's kind of being passive. He's not really doing much of anything. They're just kind of waiting around. Jonathan is sick of this. And he says, you know what? He tells his spotter, let's go. Let's go over. Let's create some, some havoc. You know, maybe God will do something. And you have to love this guy. Jonathan, I love him. He's like this daring, bold, go-for-broke young man who has an amazing faith and trust in God's ability to deliver them. And uh, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, they're going to be, you know, at strategic disadvantage when they go out. But he's like, hey, maybe God will do something. In fact, look at verse 6. You have to love this attitude. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And this was the rally cry in Israel. It's all up to God anyhow. It doesn't matter how many people we have, whether we're outgunned or outmanned or strategic, strategic disadvantages. Hey, God will deliver us, and who knows what will happen here. And you just got to love this guy, you know? I mean, this, don't you kind of love this? this is about, I, I look at Lance, and I think of Lance like this, you know what I mean? I'm like, got to love this person. They're willing to take some bold risks and, and do some things for God. So, uh, so Jonathan and his armor bearer go out. And I'll kind of compress the story for you a little bit as we're up here, but uh, they go out. And, uh, and they initiate uh, an ambush, and it goes amazingly well. It is a smashing success. I mean, they take out 20 men in the first engagement. And, uh, and, and as the battle is raging and as it is going on, all of a sudden Saul hears about this. Saul and his lookouts hear the, the noise of the battle. They hear what's going on, and all of a sudden it's like it wakes Saul up. He hears what's happening. And, uh, and it moves him to action. Look at verse 20. Uh, excuse me, not verse 20, uh, but, uh, uh, well, actually, yeah, verse 15. Look at verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army and those in the camp in the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties of the Philistines, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are tearing it up down on the battlefield, and God enters into it. God joins in with this earthquake. The ground is shaking. Everything's moving. So not just in this initial battle, but all of the far outposts are feeling this, and there's a panic that sets into the Philistine army. They start scattering. Saul's scouts hear about this, and they move. 
Look at verse 16. Now Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. And Saul said to his men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. And when they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So Saul looks around and he says, Hey, number everybody. Somebody's doing this. So he numbers all the, the people, finds out it's Jonathan. He's like, Ah, oh, that crazy kid again. And, um, and Jonathan's out there and he's doing this. And, and, and Saul's like, Oh, okay. And he's listening and says, Well, what do we do? All right? So Saul said to Ahijah, this kind of guy from the disgraced priesthood, bring the ark of God. Now, this is probably not the ark, by the way. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates this as an ephod or the linen garment in which the Urim and the Thummim, those two stones used for determining God's will that the high priest would have in his pockets. Uh, it's a very good chance that this is it. Uh, the other reason why we think this is the verb for bringing it is never used of bringing the ark, but it's always used of bringing the ephod. So the Hebrew term hanagish is this term, all right? You should bring the ephod. So Ahijah, this priest, comes over and he begins to bring the, uh, the, the priestly garment. He begins digging his hand into the pockets to begin to, to, you know, utilize the stones. And all of a sudden Saul says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. The sound of the battle has increased, all right? So while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the Philistine camp increased more and more. And Saul said to the priest, hold on, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all his men assembled and they went to battle. And they win an incredible victory, driving the people back to this place called uh, Beit Aven, which is uh, where they originally started the incursion. The Philistines started to encroach upon Israel's territory. So they win this huge, huge, huge victory. Now, here's what I want you to see out of this. What do you think is going on in Saul's mind? Because this is really important. I see these wheels turning in Saul's head right now. They're sitting around. All of a sudden, there's this incredible battle. He finds out that it's Jonathan, his son, who has initiated this attack, and it's really, really going well. And, he, and he, I think Saul is saying to himself, I've got to get in on this. I need to cash in on this. Jonathan has started this incredible victory. It looks like it's going to go really, really well. And I believe Saul is starting to think to himself, I need this. I need this win. I need to get in on this. I need to cash in on what's happening with my son, Jonathan. And I think in the, in the, the most primal part of his head, there was this little voice saying to himself, maybe, maybe if you can get this win, maybe if you can defeat this army, maybe if you can drive them back, maybe you can keep your kingship. Maybe God will restore you. Maybe you can get a hold of this thing and maybe it'll turn out good. See, I think Saul really needs this win. Really needs it bad. They join in the battle. They drive them back. And then Saul makes an incredibly foolish decision. Look at verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. And so none of the troops tasted food. Saul makes a tactical decision here. He's going to drive the troops even further. He wants even a bigger victory. He wants to push the Philistines back even further. And so he puts all of his troops under a vow that they will not eat that day until they have driven the Philistines further and further back. Right. I mean, he wants to complete this thing. But you know what? This is a ridiculous decision. It's actually a very, very militarily stupid decision because every commander knows that your troops live on their stomachs. His soldiers are depleted. Their energy is gone. But he's going to put them under this vow. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this vow. 
It's not a spiritual vow in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. This is not a vow before God. This is not a vow for spiritual purposes that will take place. This is purely personal on Saul's part. He needs this win. He needs this win in the worst way possible. And he's going to have to ride this thing for everything it's worth. So he's not going to let his troops eat. All right? Not going to let them eat. Well, out of this decision is going to unfold and roll out a series of very unintended consequences in Saul's life that are going to cost him big time. I mean, there are things that are going to roll out of this that he never anticipated, never saw coming, never thought would occur, but it's going to highly affect what takes place in the rest of the story. Have you ever had this happen to you, like where you make this one bad, bad judgment call and then all these things roll out of it? All this stuff happens out of it and it just kind of snowballs and it snowballs to the next thing and the next thing. Well, that's what you're going to see here. In fact, I ran into a story like this. True story. Newspaper in Florida reported this story of a guy who was working on his motorcycle on his back patio. And, uh, and, and there, he was working on the motorcycle. He was gunning the engine while he was working on it and it slipped into gear. Went through his plate glass window into his house, dumped him on his uh, living room floor, uh, his wife, who was in the kitchen, hears the, the, the great crash. She comes in. She sees her husband. She sees the window. She's him lying on the floor. He's cut. And, uh, and so she just goes and calls 911 right away. The paramedics are called out, and as they arrive, they, they pick up the guy. His wounds aren't too bad. They're not life-threatening or anything like that. So they want to take him in for observation, so they take him in. And uh, she stays behind to begin to clean up the mess. So she sees the motorcycle and... She's able to get it outside onto the patio again, and, uh, and, and she begins mopping, you know, sweeping up all the glass, and she knows there's this huge gasoline spill, so she, she goes and she mops it up with some paper towels and just throws them in the toilet. The guy comes back from the hospital, looks at his bike, looks at the plate glass window, looks at the destruction, and he becomes so despondent over it, he goes into the bathroom to smoke a cigarette, sits down on the toilet. Yeah, you're getting it. Paper towels, gasoline, cigarette. When he's done with the cigarette, he opens the lid and tosses it between his legs into the toilet bowl. The wife hears this explosion. Boom! And she comes running in, and here's the guy laying on the floor. His pants are blown off. All right? He's got kind of burns on his backside, you know, the back of his legs and everything like that. And uh, she immediately she goes and she calls 911 again, calls emergency. Same paramedic crew comes out. Same crew from the earlier one. They put the guy on a stretcher. They're taking him down. Apparently, they'd lived on this very this high hill and having to come down these, these flights of stairs. One of the paramedics asks her, how did this happen? And when he hears the story, he starts laughing so hard, they spill the guy out of the stretcher. He rolls down the, the stairs and breaks his arm. All right? Have you ever had this happen to you like this? You, one bad judgment call, and all this stuff starts rolling out. Right? This is going to happen to Saul here. All right? So watch how it happens. And again, I'll compress the story for you. Saul drives the troops on. Jonathan has rejoined the troops, he and his armor bearer, but they didn't get the memo about not eating. So as they are advancing in the forest of Beth Avon, right, uh, he sees some honey, some natural honey on the ground, and, and he eats some of it. All right? And apparently this stuff is better than five-hour energy drink because his eyes brighten and he's got energy and, uh, and he's like, oh, this is awesome. But some of the men around him are going, hey, 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 hold on, man. Don't you know your dad said nobody can eat anything? I mean, we're all under this vow. And I find Jonathan's response fascinating. 
here. Look at verse 29. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes have brightened? When I tasted a little of this honey, how much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder that they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? You can almost begin to picture, and in fact, earlier, we've seen that there's a little bit of a rift between Jonathan and his father. Things are not all well in Saulsville and Jonathanville. He wouldn't tell his father about the attack originally because I believe he had lost faith in his father's ability to lead the troops. And all the troops had lost that as well. That's why they're all down. It's only down to 600 men. And here you can kind of see his response as well. He goes, oh, man, my dad's just not thinking. He's just not thinking right, man. He's just making these bad judgment calls. But nonetheless, he's already eaten this, right? Now, another unintended consequence is going to roll out of it because as they push on, the men are so depleted, so exhausted that they break military discipline and they begin eating some of the animals that they have captured. They're just slaughtering them on site. They're not cooking them. They're eating raw meat, which is a no-no. They're not supposed to eat meat with the blood in it. And so they're sinning in this situation. So now, all of a sudden, someone notices that this is happening. It's brought to Saul's attention, and now he's got to clean up this mess. So now he's got to clean up this thing going on with his troops, and, uh, and finally they get that kind of cleaned up, and, uh, and they're ready to move on, but now it's night. But Saul wants to push the battle even further. And this, again, is very, very rare in ancient times. They just didn't really push attacks at night. It was too risky. Uh, and it was just not something that was normally done. So the priests are a little nervous about this. And they're like, man, I don't know if we should do this. We, I think we should check in with God before we move forward, right? And so Saul's like, okay, let's check in with God. So they, uh, the priests work on things, and God doesn't answer. God doesn't answer them. So all of a sudden they start suspecting there's been sin here somewhere in the camp. Somebody sinned. We need to figure this out. So they begin casting lots, and the lots fall to Saul and his son Jonathan eventually. And then they cast lots again, and eventually it falls to Jonathan. And Saul goes to his son and says, what have you done? And Jonathan says, Dad, all I did was I ate some honey. All I did was eat this honey off the ground. And Saul says, I don't care. You're a dead man. We're going to execute you. I can't allow this to go on. Now, this is the interesting part, because the troops now intervene in verse 45, and they say these words. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground today, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. And then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. All of these unintended consequences roll out. He wants to execute Jonathan, but the troops, in a rare act of insubordination, intervene. They're going to save Jonathan because they really believe Jonathan has won this battle with God's help, fulfilling all the demands of holy war, trusting God in the midst of being outgunned, outmanned, at strategic disadvantage. Jonathan's done everything that should have been done by Saul. And you're not touching him. You're not touching him. And then did you notice this? The momentum is lost. All the initiative, all the momentum is gone. They can't really pursue the enemy anymore. It's just not going to work. And so they halt the battle where it is at with the victories that it, they at least have. Now, the rest of the narrative on through the end of, ch of, of chapter 14, it really summarizes Saul's reign as king. And you're going to see three, three, three things in it. I'm not, again, not going to spend the time to read it. The three things you're going to see is one. Saul wasn't all a bad guy. 
I mean, he wasn't all bad. He's not this tremendously, terribly evil person. He does some really, really good things. He wins some, some great victories for God. So he's not all bad. He's a lot like you and I. Second thing is, you do see him becoming increasingly isolated and increasingly disengaged from the rest of the people. All he has around him at the end is his family. Even Jonathan, because Jonathan, though he disagreed and and had lost faith in his father, was loyal to the end with Saul. And you finally see in the very, very last verse the door opening for the entrance of the new character into the first Samuel story, which is going to be a young shepherd boy named David, who will be the anointed next king of the nation of Israel. So let me see if I can't draw some observations, some insights for us from the entire story a little bit that I think will help us as we're trying to navigate this tension um, of being the lowercase kings under the leadership of the capital K king in the world and the spheres of influence that God has given to each one of us. I got to tell you this. I'm really disturbed by this story. It really disturbs me. Saul, do you see him? And I don't know if you see him the way I see him, but I see Saul, everything is slipping out of his fingers. Everything that God has, has tried to give him is slipping out of his fingers. His rule, his authority, his respect, everything. And, and, and he's like this man who is grabbing at everything he can, like a drowning man. He's grabbing at everything he can to figure out how he can keep his kingship, how he can keep being the one in control, how he can control everything around him. And you watch it, and it's sad, and it's disturbing when you see it happen. But I think what really disturbs me about it is because I am so much like Saul, and so are you. We are so much like Saul. I, I, I want my world to be bigger. I want to be the king of the hill. I want to be the big dog. I want to be the person that excels in life. That's not necessarily a bad thing underneath the leadership of God himself, but it's so dangerous because there's a line you cross, and Saul has crossed the line. And daily I wrestle with this. How much of me do I put into this? So I want you to notice some things about Saul and the way he operates in life, because there are things I think we can avoid, all right? There are things that we can stay away from. And then we're going to look at Jonathan because there's some things we can learn from Jonathan in this context. So Saul, things I see about Saul here is simply this. Saul is operating primarily out of his dysfunctions, out of his dysfunctions. And you have to understand this. Saul has suffered a huge wound. He has been really, really wounded. He's on the outs as king. It's a done deal. He's never going to get this back. But he thinks if he can just win this victory, he can do this. And, and this represents something that happens to you and I all the time. I don't know about you, but life will throw you all kinds of things. And you will face all kinds of things in life. You will fail. You will screw up. You will sin. You will disobey God. You will walk your own way. Many of us have done that for a long time. Some of you may, might even be doing that here this morning as you have come in. And what happens is when we fail, when that happens, we try to figure out ways to cope with it. And what happens is we turn to to very natural capacities to try to cope with this this hurt and this pain that we have. The problem is they don't really work all that well because they're they're natural. They are what the New Testament would call the flesh. They are fleshly ways of trying to deal with things. And it doesn't matter whether it's a substance that you start getting into to dull the pain or whether it's a relationship 
or whether it's some kind of personal coping mechanism or some kind of strength that you think you have and so you kind of hide yourself in that strength because you don't want anyone to see the ugliness and the weakness that's part of your life. But we all have ways of doing this. And Saul is doing this exact thing. He has been hurt very, very badly. He is responding to his natural charisma and strengths as a king and, and he wants to just really leverage those things and, and stay on top. But it is a house of cards. It will never work because it is a natural way of doing this. I watch Saul operating out of these dysfunctions. I think, man, that's something that we need to be aware of and to try to stay away from. The other thing I see is that Saul is operating out of what I call a fear-based approach to God. A fear-based approach. Again, I don't know if you see some of the things I see in this text, but I see Saul being this guy that's, that's very, very tenuous and cautious and... And uh, he doesn't want to move forward. He's passive at times when he should be proactive. And, and then at the times when he should be passive, he gets proactive. And he makes all these kinds of, of bad judgment calls. But it's like he's just playing so tight. He's like this athlete um, who, 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 who just is so afraid to make a mistake. And, and it's understandable. He's had a huge failure that has wounded him. And he doesn't want to make any more mistakes. So he's operating very carefully and very cautiously. But you know what? It's costing him because he's not going to ever do great, bold things for God. By contrast, look at Jonathan. Jonathan's not having priests at his side. Jonathan's not trying to pull the the Urim and the Thummim out. Jonathan's not worried about that. He's like, hey, I think God wants us to move on this. I think we should go out and try to engage these guys. But he doesn't have any of the things traditionally we think. Because Jonathan's not afraid. Jonathan is bold for God. He has this amazing trust in God and God's ability in the middle of the situation. Saul just feels like he's locked up, like oh, he just can't, he can't really engage it. He can't really move. He's got to have, he's got to have everything kind of just right so he doesn't make a mistake again. And he really needs this win. He really needs this. And that leads us to the third thing that I see in him, and that is that I think Saul has this very kind of mechanistic approach to God. You notice he has all the externals, but you're not really seeing much heart in Saul. I mean, he's got the externals of kind of the religiosity aspect, like, oh, let's check with the priests. Let's pull out the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, Let's make sure we check with God. We better clean up this sin, you know, right away. And and these are not bad things that he wants to do, by the way. But it's like it's the only thing he's doing. It's like he's trusting the mechanisms to deliver what God wants to give to him. And I think we do this as well, don't we? Like if, you know, if I have my quiet time today, then, then my day is going to go really good. Okay. If I just sit down with God, it's going to be a really good day. And if I go to worship on Sunday, I'm probably going to have a good week. But if I don't, uh, you know, look out. Or we do this with money, especially financial resources. Hey, if I give to God, then he's going to give back to me, right? Which, by the way, God never promises. Ever. God does promise that if we learn how to give financially to kingdom causes, that God will enrich our lives, but He doesn't say He will make us rich. And that's the subtle distinction. It's not that we don't need mechanisms. It is that we need both mechanisms and real relationship with God. Real heart invested in the mechanisms themselves. 
and heart at the very core of those mechanisms, not just a mechanical approach that if I do certain things, then God's going to do something. And by the way, you know what will really reveal this? What will really reveal this is when you get crushed by life. Because the tendency is going to be to say, but God, I've been good. I mean, I've been serving you, and I've been giving to you. And why would this happen to me? Why would this happen to us? You know, last summer, um, we lost our seven-year-old grandson to a car accident. Just ran out in front of a car, just did a seven-year-old thing. My daughter and her husband are devastated by it. And, and the struggle is, you know, God, we've been serving you. And she, she and her husband have this incredible ministry to a, a, a low-income housing project in El Dorado Hills. And, uh, and my daughter's response is, God, why would this happen to us? That's not wrong for her to wonder that. We're all going to wonder those things. But it, it belies this underlying thing that says, well, if we did these things, then God is going to shield us from this stuff. I'm going to tell you this. God protects us. God moves with us through these things, but he doesn't stop them from happening to us. And many of you know this. It feels very mechanical to me with Saul. But here's the big thing. And it's that Saul, I see, is operating out of his own ego needs. He's operating out of his own ego needs. He needs to be king with a capital K. He's got to have this. And, and he starts doing things that will almost push it further and further and further away from him. In these bad judgment calls he makes because he needs this so badly. He needs to be king. It is so easy to operate out of grandiosity, isn't it? Out of our own sense of image and, and needs. And, you know, and so sometimes we cut corners and we do things we shouldn't do. And never turns out. Never does. But we think it's going to. I remember the stories told of Muhammad Ali one time who was on a plane. And... Uh, uh, they were kind of talking, it was pre-flight, and uh, the flight attendant came down the aisle, and she was telling everyone, okay, it's time, you know, we're going get, to get ready to go, please put on your seatbelts, fasten them, and, and we're going to get ready to take, take off. Well, Muhammad Ali is talking to some friends, she goes down to the back of the plane, kind of telling everyone, comes back forward, she sees he doesn't have a seatbelt on, she says, sir, would you please put your seatbelt on? And she goes back to the forward cabin, she comes back for the last and final check, and he doesn't have a seatbelt on, she says, sir, would you please put your seatbelt on, we're getting ready to, to, uh, to go out to the runway. And Muhammad Ali stood up and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked him straight in the eye and she said, Superman don't need any wings either. Sit down and put your seatbelt on. He did. <laughs> but it's so easy, right? I'm super. I'll, I, I can gut this through. I can do this. It's just ego. And one of the things that you see in Saul is he just needs this so badly. He is willing to sacrifice his own son for some trivial, stupid, personal decision just to get it. The cardinal rule, by the way, one of the cardinal rules of holy war in the Old Testament among the nation of Israel was this. God will never avenge himself for an individual, even if it's the king. God never avenges an individual. But do you remember in verse 24 when Saul wants to press the attack? And he says, I don't want anyone to eat until I have avenged, and do you remember the next word? Myself upon my enemies. God almost never, ever intervenes on behalf of just an individual, but God will fight for his people. God will intervene on behalf of the people, but not just a king. 
not just an individual. I have never forgotten this little phrase someone once told me, what ego stands for. It stands for edging God out. And that is what ego does to us. Edging God out. So what counters this? What counters these things that we see in Saul? Well, I think this is what we learn a little bit from Jonathan in this context. Because Jonathan practices something that I think we desperately need. And I'm just going to call it appropriate smallness. Jonathan practiced an appropriate kind of smallness about himself. It's one of the things that I actually really like about Bridgeway, by the way. Um, I've been watching you guys for a couple of services and was doing a, one of the, the classes here over the last few weeks. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is you guys have a lot of fun in your servants, services, which I really love. You know? And Lance is one of those guys that just uh, is hilarious to listen to. And I think it's great because what I see is you're taking God seriously, but you're not taking yourselves seriously. You're taking God very seriously, but you're not taking yourselves seriously in that. And I think it's, it's a very good thing. I, I see this with Jonathan. Jonathan takes God very seriously, but he doesn't take himself all that seriously. Can I, can I show you a story in the New Testament that, has, that just um, fleshes this out in full color for me? There's a story in John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there as well. It's not the story that we normally associate with John chapter 3, but it's in the final section of John chapter 3. And here it is. It's a story of John the Baptist and Jesus, starting in verse 22. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim uh, because there was plenty of water there and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. And now this was before John was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And you can kind of see what's happening here. I mean, John is this guy who has sparked a spiritual movement that is changing the spiritual climate of Judea at that time. And I mean, he is the biggest thing to hit. His stock is high. And he's in near this place called Enon near Salim because there's lots of water there. Well, Jesus the one that John has been pointed to, begins to move into that same territory, and he begins baptizing. So John's disciples are starting to get nervous. And they're like, John, you've got to do something, man. You remember that guy? You remember that guy you were telling us about, you kept pointing to? Well, now he's moved into your turf, and he's starting to baptize people too. And, it, and everyone's going to him. You're losing market share here, John. I mean, Jesus' stock is rising, yours is falling. Uh, you know, you need to do something. What are you going to do? And John, I think, has a great response here. John says, basically, and I'll, I'll just feed it to you. He says, hey, have you ever, guys ever been to a wedding? Have you guys ever been to a wedding? Some of you, I, I know you have. Come on. Some of you are married. Right? <laughs> so whenever I do a wedding, one of the greatest moments of the wedding is just before the bride is ready to come out and all the groomsmen file in. And there's the groom himself who then stands there, you know, beside me with his best man. And... Uh, and, uh, and everyone's kind of standing there. And usually at that point, I will whisper to him. I, I say, you've got about 30 seconds, and then you're toast. <clears throat> this is your time of glory. You are the center of attention right now, right here. It's okay, but for, if for 30 seconds, drink it in, because it's going to disappear the moment she steps into the doorway in that back. Because all eyes will be riveted upon her, and it's all over from that point on. <clears throat> 
John says the same thing. He says, hey, don't you know that the best man understands that maybe in the preparation stage, you know, uh, uh, you know he can do all these different things, but, but it's the groom that's the center of attention in a Hebrew wedding, not so much the bride. And he understands this. He says, I'm just the best man. I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. And then he says some words that I actually spent a whole summer just meditating on. It was all I did for my time with God during an entire summer. I just... And you want to know why? Because I really needed this. I was a senior pastor of a church, and my great drive was building a bigger and better church. And, you know, there was an all kinds of ambition that gets into that. It's something you have to really watch and be careful of. And, uh, and I was just kind of sick of it in my own life. And it was making me do things that I felt were bad judgment calls, and it wasn't the greatest thing. So... This verse really spoke to me because John at the very end says, He must become greater, I must become less. That's appropriate smallness. He has to become greater, I have to become less. That is so important. It's so important. And you'll see this in Jonathan. You'll see this in Jonathan himself. The last time we will see Jonathan alive in the book of 1 Samuel is a few chapters later in in chapter 23. Jonathan has formed a fast friendship with another young warrior. His name is David. They've become fast friends. And when David threatens Saul's kingship because he has now been anointed to be the successor, the next great king in Israel, Saul is threatened and he forces David to flee for his life out into the, the, the deserts of Judea. And while David is out there, he becomes pretty depressed. And we come upon this story in 1 Samuel chapter 23 that says this. And while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. For you will be king in Israel, and I will be, and listen to these words, second to you. Jonathan, who has everything to gain... If David dies, says, I know you're going to be king. And I'll be second to you. I'll be standing right there with you. But I'll be second. Ah, I love that. Folks, that's appropriate smallness. And do you wonder, like I do, how did Jonathan get that? How did he get there? How How did he have the foresight to understand it that way? I would just say this. It comes from his name. You know what Jonathan's name means? It's a contraction of two Hebrew words. Yah, okay, which is the, the, the designation for God, Yahweh. And then the Hebrew verb Natan, to give. Yonatan, God gives. And see, here's what I think about Jonathan. I think Jonathan had understood from the time he was a little guy, God is the one who gives. God is the one who gives the power. God is the one who gives the strength. God is the one who gives the authority. God's the one who gives the status. It comes from Him. He is the one who makes us adequate. He is the one who fills our life. He is the one who brings the victory. He is the one who holds grace and mercy in His hand. He is the one. It is not us. He's not us. Jonathan had learned the secret. And I'll wrap with this story. John Artberg tells the story of a young six, uh, six-year-old Sunday school teacher, or not six-year-old Sunday school teacher, but a Sunday school teacher of six-year-olds, <laughs> okay? 
And her name was Gwen Bird. And uh, she was teaching this six-year-old class. They were going to reenact creation. And so she got all the kids together. They were all going to play special parts. And she had the kids that were the creepy crawlers, you know, creeping along the ground. And animals and fish and birds and, you know, all these kind of things. And, and over it all was this one young man who was designated to be God. Okay, his name was Jonathan. He would stand on a ladder and shine a flashlight over the entire proceedings. All right? Well, about halfway through, as the creepy crawlers were beginning to creep over to where the, the fish were swimming and those kind of things, God climbs down the ladder, comes over to her. He wants out. He says, hey, he says, uh, I'm feeling a little bit crazy, too crazy to be God today. Could you just get someone else? Oh, out of the mouths of babes. Out of the mouths of babes, right? See, what you see in this story... You see Saul locked up, grasping, grabbing, crawling, trying to get himself back on top. But Jonathan is free. Jonathan is free. And maybe that's what God is wanting for us so badly, is just for us to be free. Can I pray for you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. I want to give you these people. Teach us what it means for us to practice appropriate smallness. And Lord, I pray for those who may be operating out of dysfunction this morning and, and you are speaking so loudly to them about it. Or those of us who, who operate out of a mechanistic approach or fear or maybe just ego. God, we pray you will get a hold of us. We pray we will see your greatness. We pray that we will understand you are the mighty king, the great God over all things. And may you teach us how we appropriately navigate that tension of using the best of ourselves that you have put in us under your direction and leadership and guidance. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. And everyone said, Amen.